Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us, we're at News Talk Science. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be speaking to Thomas Hertog, who is one of Stephen Hawking's longtime collaborators. He says he's working on Stephen Hawking's last theory, in which he tried to reimagine some of his work from A Brief History in Time. We'll be hearing exactly how time began in a few minutes. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. Shane, our first story has to do with really, really, really big black holes. Ultra massive, to be precise. Yeah, the technical term. Uh, This one is 30 billion times the mass of the sun. (laughs) That's, I mean, when you think about it, the sun is not small. No. Does a million Earths fit in the sun? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so 30 billion times the mass of the sun is the estimated mass of this black hole. It's a supermassive black hole. And the headline that I read said it was discovered in the UK. And I was like, oh, wow. So (laughs) (laughs) Behind behind the centre. Yeah, in Durham. (laughs) Before you go on, I have an early question. And the question is, how can nothingness or the lack of something have a lot of mass? How does a black hole have mass? Yeah, so it... it, uh, it, it uh, basically, it is a sun or a star that collapses. And so all of that mass goes into a singularity. So it basically has the gravitational effect of something with that mass. Do you know what I mean? So a sun or a star is, as you said, much, much bigger than the Earth. So it has a huge amount of gravitational pull. And so if it were to collapse to a singularity, to a single point in space, that it would still have that attractive mass. It would still have the gravitational pull. So it's like a, a singular point in space that has the gravity of an enormous sun. Yeah. A, a billion times the matter of the sun. And, and that, even though it doesn't, it, it does have the matter in it, in that singular space. Of, the black holes are mad, aren't they? Like you They are. You see, you to, if you think about it in the way Einstein describes space time, right? So it's like the fabric of the universe. And if something is heavy, in other words, if it has mass, then it has a dip in uh, the, the the fabric of space-time. It's like putting the idea of, you know, this really bad analogy, putting a bowling ball on, on a mattress. You yeah. see the dip, and so you can see the gravitational field in toward it. Now, if you have a big object, right, and then it collapses down to a tiny, um, tiny, tiny, tiny space, it'll still have the gravitational pull. It, has to, it's still, it hasn't gone anywhere. So you're still going to have that curve in space-time. And so a black hole is is an extreme curve in space-time from, from which nothing, including light, can escape. And this one here um, is said to have the mass of 30 billion uh, suns, which is really huge. It's, you kind of think you would have spotted that, considering the amount of gravity that must exert on the space around it. So that begs the question, how do you see something that's black, right? So you normally have to look at the edges of where things are being pulled in. And as they're being pulled in, they give off radiation and we can see that. So yeah. we can see the edge. But this one was an inactive black hole and it's thought that most of them are. What? So it's, there's nothing around it it can suck in anymore, right? It's, oh, right. it's, it's eaten everything. <laughs> so <laughs> So it's there. And so they, they use a different technique. They use something called gravitational lensing. Now, we've spoken about that before. So when light moves in a straight line, it will get deviated by heavy objects. So it bends. Yeah. Um, and it acts like a lens, like your glasses. So we can use this effect to be able to 
um, to pinpoint objects in space that are huge. And so using the Hubble telescope and a very, very big computer, scientists in Durham were able to discover or find this supermassive black hole. Not to spend too much time on this, but um, how do they get the light from the other side of this? What are they looking at? How do they know that that light isn't just... So they can see that it's shifted I as see. it goes okay. around. It lenses around the, the, the like where it should be, basically. Um, so this is the darkest thing that we've known. But we've also this week um, uh, uh, talked about the brightest object ever seen, a so-called gamma ray burst happened very close to us. This one, only about 20 solar masses, so relatively small compared to the other. But it was so bright, it basically maxed out all of our instruments that look for these very energetic events. OK. Mm. And, and what is it? Gamma ray burst happens when a star dies. It can happen with the supernova, not necessarily always together, but it is the death, the death throes of, of a huge star. Very cool. Um, Ruth, our second story is a little more closer to home and it's about um, the post-antibiotic era. This is something that I suppose we were talking about quite a lot Um maybe three or four years ago, COVID came and we stopped really thinking about that, focusing on the matter at hand. Um, but the the bacteria didn't really stop. They didn't stop. And and actually, interestingly, during COVID, we prescribed a lot of antibiotics. Um, so, so in fact, it's a problem that, that got worse during COVID. But this is a new report that just came out from the WHO. And it's really pointing to the very worryingly small number of promising new antibiotics that are coming through that are in development. There's only 27 new antibiotics in, in the pipeline. And, and just to put that into context, there's a like 1,300 cancer drugs being developed at the same time. So it's a very small number. Only six of them are kind of considered really new and innovative and may have the possibility of dealing with some of the most resistant bacteria, which tend to be the the gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, which are very hard to punch through their coating and and get chemicals inside them. Um, So this is a report that's come out. It's going to be discussed fully at the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases next month. Um, but again, it is, I mean, they have called this a doomsday scenario. Oh, great. And yeah, I know. Yet another they seem one. to be coming. Uh, it's doomsday it's like, days at the moment. It's like a bus these days. It is a bus. <laughs> when's the next doomsday coming along? But certainly for those of us, you know, particularly when if, you, if you've ever had a sick kid and you've just gone in and you've seen when you need an antibiotic and when it miraculously works. And, and you know, that's a privilege a lot of us have grown up with. Mm. The idea that that may no longer be available is, is certainly worrying. Why would you not um, be putting a lot of money into this particular boat if you're a pharmaceutical company? It seems to me like one of those absolute money spinners if you do find an antibiotic that works because they are badly needed. Yeah, unfortunately not. The economic model for drugs doesn't work for antibiotics at all. Why? So, So if you think about it, it costs maybe 600 million euros to create a drug. You know, maybe one in 30 of those will go on to actually be get it, get into patients, pass all of the safety and efficacy trials. And then, of course, what do we want to do with a brand new antibiotic that tackles superbugs? We want to lock it up in a cupboard and use it as little as possible. <laughs> right. We need to reserve it for only the most serious cases. Yeah. And that's why it doesn't work. So there are a number of uh, new, the, there's the Pasteur Act in the US is trying to, you know, look at new ways of funding drug companies to do this. We have the Innovative Medicines Initiative, which is looking at it. I mean, the, the other thing is those gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, they have this extra tough outer c- 
coating, which is really hard to get through. But we know that they get food and nutrients through there. They have these structures, special proteins called porins, which things can get through. And amazing as it sounds, like we still need fundamental science to understand exactly how those bacteria work Mm. so that we can come up with new antibiotics for them. And the other thing that we need, and it was the subject of the Longitude Prize in the UK, was how can we quickly diagnose bacterial infections? I mean, at the moment, it still takes 24 to 36 hours. You have to take a swab from a patient, you have to take it to a lab, you have to grow it up, you have to look at the culture. Like the the Longitude Prize tried to galvanise teams of scientists to come up with a test, a rapid test, 30 minutes, that you could know what you were dealing with. And if we had that more specific um, identification of what kind of infection somebody had, that could cut down on use of antibiotics as well. But Absolutely. it's a tough one. Um, our third story uh, has to do with a so-called Einstein tile. What oh, is this, Shane? Look at you with your correct pronunciation. But yeah. it's not like Albert Einstein here. This is from the German word Einstein, which means one stone. Did, oh, Didn't what? know that. Yeah. So this is the story that mathematicians have finally discovered the elusive Einstein tile. So it's a 13-sided shape. And if you're trying to think about what that looks like, imagine it's called a polykite. Imagine lots of uh, kite shaped objects kind of wedged together. I think you'd have to see this. Maybe you're going to tweet it out to have to it's really not get a picture. It's not miles of it. off hound's tooth. Yeah, you're right. It isn't. But it's an it's an unusual thing. Right. Yeah. And it's 13 sided. And what it's called a hat. And what it does is when you can piece it together with other uh, other ones of these, you'll fo- you'll never form a repeating pattern. It's called an aperiodic uh, structure, right? So there's no periodicity or uh, pattern within it. And, that's- and so for, for people to imagine what that looks like, a hound's tooth, of course, is immediately repetitive. And then you think of like flocks are um, repetitive in, by interlocking in different ways. These are pieces that fit together perfectly. Yes. But at the same time, if you keep putting them all together, you will never get the same pattern, yeah, which, so is, which is actually confounding in a way. It's, it's crazy to think that that is even possible. Yeah, and so for a long time it was like, how are we going to find this? And the only one we had was the famous Penrose tile, which is two objects when infamous, put together. Infamous, I give it infamous at <laughs> best. <laughs> okay, so yeah, the Penrose tiles, two shapes needed to get the aperiodic uh, pattern. I was wondering why can't they just stick them together and call it one shape, but there must have been some maths reason for that. And so this one now, discovered by a guy called David Smith, who was described as a non-professional mathematician who, quote, was a, an imaginative tinkerer of shapes. I see. Yeah. So he discovered this and uh, people are going absolutely bananas about it. And I thought, this is great. I says, what use is that? And I'm not one of those people that thinks everything needs a use, but there is actually good uses for this. So the 2011 Nobel Prize was given to something called quasi-crystals, right? which are basically crystals that don't have um, a, a periodic or pattern shape. And if you put those into materials, you can make them much stronger because there isn't going to be a kind of a degree that you can cleave. They're not going to break in a right. certain orientation. So they're incredibly tough and incredibly strong. So this this is only at its infancy. They're very, very excited, as the mathematicians tend to be, about these things. And it is the beginning, perhaps, of a whole new way of making jigsaws and designs and stuff like that. Very cool. Um, although it would be a very easy jigsaw. That's true. It would be the same piece. But like, I was thinking about more it's like... It's all of the same piece. Yeah, it's my kind of jigsaw. I <laughs> yeah, finally exactly. wouldn't lose it. <laughs> um, finally, Ruth, um, pets could soon be gene-edited. 
in the UK. What does that mean? Well, maybe. Um, this is about the new ge- Genetic Technology or Precision Breeding Act that just passed into the law in the UK. So people may remember this was sort of touted as one of the Brexit benefits because the EU has historically taken a very conservative approach to genetic modification of anything that gets out there into the wild, kind of the precautionary principle. And the UK had said, well, look, one of the things that we could do if we leave the EU is we could write our own laws and we could allow more editing of crops and livestock potentially. And and that's what they've done. So phase one will look at plants, but this law in all its phases will allow gene editing technologies to be used on crops and on livestock. Um, but the the, um, uh, the Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals are pointing out that there may be an unintended consequence that it doesn't specifically exclude pets like dogs and cats. And therefore, should somebody wish to, it could potentially be legal now in well, actually in Great Britain, not in Northern Ireland, but in Great Britain, to use CRISPR technologies to edit the genes of a, of a pet. So in practicality, what would that actually serve? What use would that be? I mean, they have differentiated here between genetically modified organisms or GMOs, which were traditionally made by taking a gene from one maybe quite unrelated organism and putting it into another. So, for example, the the fish antifreeze gene, you know, into a tomato or those kind of things. I mean, gene editing is is more, I mean, precision breeding, they've used that term quite specifically to say this is something we may, that could maybe happen with the genetic material of this organism. So we're going in and making small changes and speeding up what we could achieve through normal breeding but we're, we're fundamentally using the genetic material but that's to, there. To, to get what like the cutest possible poodle well, gene? No, well, no, well maybe in the animal <laughs> I mean if you think about livestock I mean and, 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 and animals that we use for food I mean one idea that was raised was you know with, with chickens you know all male chickens are cold um, if, you know in egg production so an idea would be could you modify chickens to make sure they only lay female offspring and then you wouldn't have that aspect of, of killing male chicks I mean with livestock you know could you look at the damage that they do to each other with horns and breed a, a cow that doesn't have horns. You know, so, so there are, I mean, scientists have identified welfare elements that, that could be implemented by a bill like this. Right. But, but these technologies are nascent. So, so they need to be, you know, we need to tread carefully. And, and look, we are using CRISPR technologies in humans. So, I mean, it's, it's not like... It's, but in pets, I don't understand, in pets... Yeah, I mean, again, I think this idea that you, I mean, you can certainly treat disease, you know, if a pet had some issue where you needed to, they were blind, could you restore sight as we've done things like that with humans? To be honest, I'm not sure the statement and the concern here is really warranted. I, I can't really see this happening. And I think, you know, these technologies are quite precise. But I, I suppose it. Do, I mean, one thing that's interesting is the vast majority of the British public are totally against this kind of thing. You know, they've been very anti-GMO from the beginning. While this isn't GMO, it certainly has some of the same elements. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how it lands and how it will interact in the end with EU law, which is also thinking about moving more in this direction because we need to make crops that are going to be disease resistant, that are going to be resistant to climate change. Okay, very interesting. Um, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD, thank you very much. Theoretical physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking was famous the world over, but one of his closest collaborators for 20 years was working alongside him, developing a new theory of the cosmos. Thomas Hertog uh, is from Leuven University in Belgium, uh, and he's exploring this in his new book, 
on the origin of time, Stephen Hawking's final theory. He joins me now. Uh, welcome to the program, Thomas. Before we get into the science, um, perhaps you might tell me a little bit about um, your relationship with Stephen Hawking and what it was like working alongside one of the most famous scientists in the world. Uh, well, yeah, Stephen and I met in, in 98, so 25 years ago. And at first I became his PhD student in Cambridge. But then um, our relation developed and we kept on collaborating till, till he died, really, uh, five years ago. And the question we, that sort of remained with us all these years really was a really fundamental question. It had to do with what makes the universe fit for life? Why are we here? And Stephen, I came to know as one of these rare scientists who was really guided by these bigger questions that we humans have asked uh, all along. So even though he declared philosophy dead, he was uh, pretty much doing philosophy with his equations, I'd say. So it was a lot of fun. We, we, we developed towards the end of his life, I would say, a kind of intimate relationship because the communication with Hawking became very, very difficult. Um, even manipulating his uh, computer became difficult. And so he spoke through that computer voice. But I think what happened was that um, we had a good basis in these first years of our collaboration. And we kind of built on that. And we developed some sort of non-verbal way of communicating um not about not about love and all that but uh <laughs> okay so it's interesting you talk about you know the the life part of this um theory because when i think of hawking i think of a brief history in time i think of black holes and i think of pretty much everything other than human beings the the uh, idea of of bringing together you know uh, ideas of the big bang which uh, um you know obviously Hawking didn't uh, create, but made popular, and black holes made popular in uh, in the world as we understand it today. But it, it, it was never really framed um, through the origins of life. Um, so is this something that he was always interested in, or is this something that he developed after the uh, A Brief History of Time? Good, good. Great question. Yeah. Yeah. So that's strange, right? We are out there in the cosmos, <laughs> dealing with black holes and the Big Bang, and yet the ground question from which this kind of research emerged had really to do with, yeah, what is our place in the universe? And the reason it had to do with that is that uh, the theory that Hawking and others developed in, for instance, in A Brief History of Time, the theory of the Big Bang, well, typically the Big Bang doesn't really produce a universe that is habitable, that has stars and galaxies and a delicate balance between the particle forces so that you can have atoms and carbon and molecules, all stuff we need for life. And and dark energy. I mean, you, you, can't get the, you can't get too much dark energy or the universe will expand way too fast and we wouldn't be here. And so there's this long list of properties of our universe down at the level of physics, which somehow emerged out of the Big Bang which are absolutely crucial for life. And that was the mystery he was really interested. Not only he, but some other cosmologists too, but I think Hawking sort of, you, you asked, was it always like that? I think the question was always there. 
at the, in the back of his mind. It only came sort of central stage in the late 90s, one could say, because the time was ripe to tackle it. So um, Hawking's theory um, looked at time as a linear thing, um, that it was always going in one direction, if I'm if I'm correct. And some of your work that builds on, and I suppose in, in collaboration with Hawking, is is sort of questioning that that time was always going in one direction uh, and also that um that it came from one place that the, the the question is that um the universe that we have may not be um the only universe so can you take me through some of the science that you and hawking and and, and uh, other collaborators have worked on to try and refine what we thought about the big bang as, as this line to now a slightly more um complicated uh, idea yeah, complicated, yes and no, right? Um, what, the, what, what the early Hawking and everyone in physics, really, Einstein, all these people, what we were looking for was sort of an ultimate equation, an equation, a formula, a theory that would dictate how at the Big Bang, how the universe should be, a sort of a transcendental, eternal truth encapsulated in mathematics. Now, that didn't quite work. And so in the 90s, cosmologists shifted gear, and that's, that's what you're alluding to. They, they started talking about, well, maybe there are many universes. Maybe there, we live in a multiverse, and maybe there is no real design that makes our universe fit for life. Maybe it's just like luck. It's an accident. And there are many universes which are just lifeless and useless. But... I think Hawking was one. Hawking was one of the first ones to realize that the the idea of a multiverse wasn't really proper science, and so wow. we, we began to look for a better theory. And the theory that we arrived at, and the title of my book uh, says it all on the origin of time. The title is a variation of Darwin's uh, title on the origin of species. And we arrived at the, uh, at the picture, at the theory, at a hypothesis that at the Big Bang, there was a deeper layer of evolution involved, an evolution at the level of the laws of physics, in which the laws of physics gradually took shape, a little bit like the tree of life billions of years later. And so there could be the design that we have around us, the, de the apparent design of the universe, the fitness for life, in our hypothesis, is the result of a very early stage of evolution. So and evolution evolution is something that we associate with biological things. It's yeah. not something we associate with the laws of our universe. And I'm wondering yes. how on earth can you use mathematics and science to arrive at something where you say the observable universe as we see it now came from laws that don't exist um, anywhere in the universe or um, existed in a different way and they changed because that to me seems like a very difficult thing to prove. Yeah, yeah, great, great. So this is the core of our theory. What Stephen and I developed was a different kind of law of physics. Um, a law, the, the normal laws of physics that, that you refer to and that we know are laws of evolution like Newton's law of gravity. And it's written down in an equation, and we think of it, and Newton thought about it that way, as an eternal truth. 
But Stephen and I developed a different kind of law, a law in more of a final, more of an initial condition or, or a starting point. Um, so the laws of evolution, when we go back into the Big Bang, merge from stuff that evolved in time to the disappearance of the dimension of time itself. So they merge from something that evolves gradually into something that disappears, not just like uh, the origin of time, but it would also be the disappearance of the notion of laws of physics. Are you saying that time was a fourth dimension that has now morphed into something else, or am I missing that? Uh, now time is a fourth dimension. This is So now we have three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. But back at the Big Bang, time, the dimension of time, kind of evaporated. And in our picture, morphs, in a sense, with the space dimensions to close off, to close off the past. So yes, we are saying that time, the usual thing we use all the day, uh, hasn't been there forever. That, there, that the Big Bang is, in fact, a really fundamental limit to reality, where even our basic notions of causality uh, cease to be meaningful. Yes. So, so, so time was invented at the time of the Big Bang, essentially. <laughs> yes, it emerged. It's an emergent property, just like anything else, you know. Okay, so um, that is something that I suppose is very difficult to prove, but there it is possible to disprove, I suppose, theoretically, if you find um, remnants of energies from uh, from beyond the Big Bang, theoretically. Uh, are there physical limits? Is that a physical impossibility to see anything beyond the Big Bang? Or is it possible that someone might, um, with new technologies, um, smash that uh, Yeah, barrier? good, good. Great, great. Of course, of course. Like, a proper scientific hypothesis should be disprovable, right? In fact, this was basically uh, Stephen's issue with the multiverse, that you could not, either you could neither prove it nor disprove it. Um, but indeed, if you were to find some sort of fossil stuff, I don't know what it would be, but something that came from before the Big Bang, clearly our theory, you should throw it out of the window. Um, this is a new hypothesis, and a hypothesis which takes the evolutionary character of the laws of physics in the very earliest stages seriously, and it predicts a certain pattern of gravitational waves associated with what you call the invention of time at the Big Bang, as associated with the emergence of time at the Big Bang. That pattern of gravitational waves, so ripples of the fabric of space, should still be around today, but is very, very difficult to observe. So, in fact, at the time of his death, Stephen was working on a paper to sort of precisely make that prediction um, as precise as possible. But the actual observation of those gravitational waves is something for future uh, observatories. So I'm going to um, ask you about two things that we've covered on the program recently, and I've, I have a feeling that you're going to not like either of them. Um, the first was um, a, an interview we did with Laura Mercini Houston, in which she claimed that uh, she had seen evidence of the multiverse in uh, our, our observations of the universe um, by seeing gaps in the universe where there should be um, there should be matter, and that 
the 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 way the universe evolved these tears or these empty pockets are evidence of multi multiverses intertwining with each other so uh, it it seemed like a very um incendiary uh interview at the time what are your thoughts on that right so i would i would interpret those observations very differently i thought I you might say not- that <laughs> yeah. well yeah what else can i say it's the typical but it's the typical fine line of course between of course um laura is not saying that we can sort of check out different universes right she is uh analyzing observations within our universe and then boldly extrapolating those to uh evidence for other universes she called them scars i think which is a good oh, example so the scars of that separation um early on in 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 the formation of our universe yeah 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 so in the end uh my um statement would be that there that that there's that there's a simpler explanation okay for the- I, I wanted to get your um thoughts on another theory which um we've talked about in the program and i thought it was very intriguing and did seem to have the backing of a number of different cosmologists and that's the idea of modified newtonian dynamics and and the the thrust of it seems to be that if you allow for the fact that gravity might behave differently in different circumstances we don't need dark energy or dark matter anymore to make up the mathematical equation of how the universe plays together and that seemed to me to be a very a strange thing given how set in stone our idea of dark energy and dark matter was so i wanted to get your thoughts on that i mean is it possible that dark matter and dark energy are uh are 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 meeting their fate as a convenient number exercise that actually we we don't need either of them to understand the universe um it is possible because we of course we haven't discovered the particles that make up the dark matter um i think personally but this is a feeling that dark matter will turn out to be particles like any other really dark energy is stranger dark energy is really really strange beast and that is likely to play a fundamental role in uh, making all these hypotheses precise. And so I'm open to the idea that uh, there are corrections right. to Newton's and even Einstein's theory that, that these are not a fi- that's not a final answer about gravity. Hmm. And in fact, that whole phenomenon that I was describing about uh, time emerging at the Big Bang and time in and the dimension of time essentially essentially evaporating back then. These are all very very strong extensions of uh, of Einstein's theory. This takes us way beyond Einstein's theory. Yeah, and and so gravity. Yes, yes, yes. I think gravity ultimately what we see with Einstein's theory is sort of the is sort of the classical limit. There there's a world beyond it. If we're trying to imagine um, the next big breakthrough in cosmology, uh, Thomas, where do you think that will be something that will really fundamentally shift our understanding of how the universe um, stacks together? Or, Or are those big discoveries just something from the past now and everything in the future just an incremental addition or a slight correction of the great theories of the past? Okay, thanks for thanks for that question. Uh, you asked for it, so I'm going to answer, right? Um, I think it's going to be the idea that our universe is a hologram. What? I think it's the idea that we live in a hologram. That's going to be the future. 
And let me explain. Uh, Please. Uh, <laughs> so you know a you know a familiar hologram, right? In a hologram, there's uh, a screen with information on it, and there's a third dimension, a third dimension of space that somehow emerges. Well, in the last twenty years, deep in the uh, offices of uh, theoretical physicists, holography, the idea that our world is fundamentally like a hologram, has been the talk of town. And why? It is because it seems to be the way that gravity, Einstein's theory, Newton's theory, and quantum theory, the theory of the micro world of particles and atoms, it seems to be that these two theories, which were always at, at odds with each other, that they work together, but in a surprising holographic way. To define what you mean by hologram, because you you're not saying that we don't physically exist in the world, or are you saying that what we our universe is a reflection of something that is elsewhere? I am. So the way the way the the, the, the way holography emerges, the way the holography plays out, is that our familiar world of gravity and time and space is in fact an emergent phenomenon from an underlying reality which is purely quantum. But, and this is the crucial surprise, which has one dimension less. And in normal circumstances, this holographic flip is completely irrelevant. It is much easier to go through life uh, thinking about uh, all dimensions that we experience are there. But, and here is the key point, when our familiar reality ceases to be accurate, ceases to be meaningful, namely, inside black holes and at the Big Bang, where Einstein's theory fails, that's where the holographic nature of reality comes to the forefront and where you lose one of the dimensions. And which dimension do we lose when we take that hologram back to the Big Bang? We lose the dimension of time. So very intriguing idea and uh, a very interesting book looking at um, building on uh, Hawking's theory and um, the work that Thomas has, has put into this as well. Um, if you are into popular science, I think this might be something that uh, could be very much up your alley. The book is called On the Origin of Time, Stephen Hawking's Final Theory, uh, author Thomas Hertog. Thanks for your time. I always find it fascinating. I have to say, I don't always fully get everything when we're talking about you know the beginning of time it's sort of hard to wrap your brain around it and um, particularly if you haven't studied cosmology but um i really enjoy that love to know what you made of it but last week we were talking about ticker tape synesthesia if you didn't hear that episode uh check it out it's absolutely fascinating it's basically people who see words as they hear the sound so they uh, almost as if they have subtitles for everything they hear and we asked people uh, what sort of synesthesia do you have? And David says, I've experienced several instances of synesthesia. I've had letter colour synesthesia, but it was different than you've described, which is basically where every letter has a colour. With me, I was singing with friends and every letter of a line of a song I didn't know was read. So the first letter of every line of a song I didn't know was read. Wow. Later, I experienced sound as colour synesthesia with eyes closed and open. Hard to explain, but bursts of colour when playing musical instruments. Different notes had different shapes and intensity. Also, the colours would guide you through a song. I have to say that sounds awesome. That sounds fantastic. 
Although I wonder, is it something you would always want to have have going on in your head? I don't know. It sounds amazing. Maria says, I was listening to News Talk on the radio today on the drive home and this topic came up. I was surprised to learn it had a name. That's me. I kept saying to my partner throughout, thanks for addressing it on the radio. I learned something new today. So Maria, do you have ticker tape synesthesia? Like that specific brand of it? Because I'd never heard of it before we started in this program. Last week, um, I was talking about uh, climate change and how we need to use our influence um, because we are on a precipice and, and everything we can do is important. Mark on Twitter says, urging individuals to take personal actions to mitigate climate change feels like A, a no-brainer, and B, the packaging industry urging customers to clean up after themselves rather than relu- reducing or eliminating packaging. Regardless of everything individuals can do, the m- impact of major intensive industries such as construction, transport, extractive and energy will make it as effective as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Love the show, by the way. I, I, I disagree. Um, I, I do think we do need systemic change and corporations are very much up there with politicians and policymakers in terms of um, making big change happens, but I do think there's an important culture that we need to sow individually, and I do think individuals can influence others. Um, I think we, we, it's it's everybody, it's every little bit helps uh, is the stage we're at when it comes to trying to get away from from two degrees, which is a horrific prospect, which we've talked about already. Now this is, after two years of reduced air and road traffic and now so many working from home and at least off some of the time and loads more EVs on the road, but apparently the temperatures are riding faster than ever? Really? What really is the idea behind keeping everyone terrified about something they really have little or no influence over? Ireland is 0.1 of the world's population and I am 0.001% of Ireland's population. Should Irish people really be laying awake at night about something they have 0.000001% control over? Well, the truth of the matter is it's going to have a huge effect on your life. So the question of whether or not you should be concerned about it, I suppose, is is up to you. I'm not I'm not trying to worry people that I am trying to instill a sense of agency um, and, and a sense of... Um, importance to those actions uh, upon people uh, and don't underestimate your level of influence um, because I think you'd be surprised how big an effect people can have in various different ways on their networks and uh, in their workplaces and so on. And that's it for your comments from last week. Thank you very much for that. Uh, again, if you'd like to contact us, email science at newstalk.com. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keen, Stephen Daunt, and Hugo De Silva, who else on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, take your eyes. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.